Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here with a lot of people because it's festival season and a lot of people are seeing a lot of movies. Uh, I'm here, as usual, with Richard Lawson. Hi, Richard. Hello. Uh, And then joining us from the mountains of Telluride, Rebecca Ford. Hi. And David Canfield. Hello. And then uh, from the Venice of the heart and mind, Cassie DaCosta. Hi. (laughs) Uh, You guys have seen a lot of movies in the last week. Uh, I have seen a small handful of them, but we've had the Venice Film Festival, the Telluride Film Festival, and then coming right up is the Toronto Film Festival. Richard, you are currently speaking to us with a view of the CN Tower, um, Mm -hmm. which seems contrived, but uh, we planned it. We planned it that way for this audio only medium. Really, you feel the impact. (laughs) Um, so I want to just talk to you guys about what you saw. It's kind of we did that thing every year where we go from wondering about all these movies and not knowing what the buzz is going to be. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, everyone knows this about Power of the Dog. And it happens in like 24 hours and suddenly all these narratives are in play. Um, and it's been really exciting because people seem really, really into a lot of these movies. Um, and I want to start with Venice because it started first. Um, we were getting buzz about movies like The Card Counter uh, and A Lost Daughter and Spencer and Dune um, before Telluride kicked off. And um, Cassie, you were, were our designated Venice correspondent. You were not there in person, but you were a lot, able to see a lot of the stuff. Um, what stood out for you the most out of all these like super early titles that Venice got to see first? I liked a lot of what I saw. I liked The Lost Daughter, I think, was probably the biggest standout for me. Um, I just thought it was a really forceful directorial debut by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And that's hard to do 
your first film, um, especially when it's going to a big studio like Netflix and there's a lot of expectations riding on you. But it was, you know, she truly did her own thing and really took risks with the source material, um, which is the novel by Elena Ferrante of the same name. And I just felt that that was, yeah, that was probably the most remarkable thing I saw. I also loved the card counter and uh, I enjoyed Spencer as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the card counter because it was only at Venice. I think it's, is it going to be at Toronto as well? I know it wasn't at Telluride and it's coming it, out in It theaters. had a secret Telluride screening. Ooh, uh, that's that's a show of faith. Um, and it's coming out in like a week. Um, and I think in terms of like sheer uh, cynical Oscar buzz, like it might not be the most important title to talk about. But of course, uh, Oscar Isaac was everywhere for his uh, 45 second slow-mo <laughs> clip on the red carpet with Jessica Chastain, which is not what the card counter is about. But he does have some good scenes with Tiffany Haddish in the card counter. So maybe we should uh, not count it out for that. Um, but that's one that people can actually see soon. So Cassie, um, can you talk about what struck you about that one? Yeah, I mean, the film itself is not about necessarily the dynamic between Tiffany Haddish and Oscar Isaac, though it is certainly a driving force, emotional force for the film. And while I think the scenes from a marriage, Jessica Chastain, Oscar Isaac chemistry is now getting a lot of press. I think the card counter chemistry is really what people are going to feel when they actually see these films and projects. Um, But the film itself, similar to First Reform, it deals with a kind of major American moral um, and systemic failure. In this case, it's the abuses at Abu Ghraib. And Oscar Isaac plays a former soldier who goes by William Tell, um, who was convicted of his crimes there. But the film is also about how, and this is true, this was actually true, many of the people who are actually in charge of sort of orchestrating these abusive practices were not were never held accountable. It was mostly the people who could be identified in photos who were often lower ranking soldiers. And in fact, contractors, there are a lot of contract military personnel hired. They actually can't be prosecuted or indicted for those crimes because they were contractors. So the film gets into into that, but not in a technical sense, in a very emotional, um, moral sense. And that really comes from Paul Schrader's background is growing up in a Calvinist family, really strict Christianity, um, but also having himself a kind of rebellious counter view to some of that religious doctrine. So this film, I would say, is a lot more hopeful than First Reformed. Um, Oh, man, it's such a bummer, too, though. It's it's so dark. It's very dark, but I think it's dark in a way that maybe only somebody who grew up in deep Christianity can can access in order to get to the light. You know, like, you need the darkness to get to the salvation, so... I'm thinking of my friend who is an ordained minister who saw First Reform and was so frustrated by it. I'm going to have to get her to see this one and tell me and <laughs> tell me how to read it now. <laughs> um, okay. Wait, did anyone else see Card Counter at Telluride or elsewhere? I've seen it. Yeah, I really liked it. It's really interesting vehicle for Oscar Isaac, I think. Like, I think even the movie, like, kind of, like, worked and didn't work for me in, in starts. But, like, Oscar Isaac is so magnetic in the whole center of it. And, like... Scenes from Marriage, That Gift on the Red Carpet, um, Dune, and then this. Like, it's a really interesting set of work he's doing. And it's, like, kind of unclear if, like, this is the year he finally gets an Oscar nomination, which I think we've all been waiting for. But, like, it does seem to all be building toward that and, like, showing just more and more of what he can do. I think if you have three projects at Venice in one year, they just give you a villa on the Grand Canal. (laughs) I mean, that's how that works. I would accept that consolation prize for not having an Oscar. (laughs) I'd be perfectly happy. Um, 
All right. So, Cassie, you mentioned Spencer. When we recorded last week, we were kind of all just like really sitting on the edge of our seat to figure out what the deal with Spencer was. And they showed it in New York and L.A. And basically at the same time as Venice, they showed it in Telluride the day after. So, Cassie, you got to see it first. I think about out of everybody um, uh, is that was all that Chris and Stewart hype worth it. I think it's one of those films that is like both made and and broken by its hype, which is to say Kristen Stewart is to me kind of the anti-actress and that she, you love her, you hate her. What she does in a film, you know, she always brings very much her energy to characters. And I think that's what I I love about her best work is that she's very present in it. And, And again, with Spencer, you know, it's not surprising that Pablo Larraín takes a very kind of um, eccentric approach to this subject. That is, you know, that's his MO. Um, but Kristen Stewart carries it. She's very committed to this part, but not in a kind of, I think not in the kind of pretentious way that we expect with big performances, big biopic performances. She's very much in it. And so even the ridiculousness of the the film, which I personally enjoyed, you, you feel you feel her commitment at every step to it. And so it doesn't feel meaningless. It doesn't feel silly. And I think, you know, the director has commented that Kristen Stewart carried him through this film, that he relied on her. And you can and you can feel that, that she imbues the subject matter with something extra. Um, those scenes where she's talking to the ghost of um, Anne Boleyn. She's she's there. She's doing it. She's talking to a ghost, kind of bringing back her her past with um, Olivia Isaias. With personal shopper, yeah, yeah. She's, I assume she's not texting with Anne Boleyn like she was in personal shopper. Not shop, quite. Right? No. <laughs> um, well, Rebecca, you're the one he made the comment to about Kristen Stewart carrying the film. Like you caught up with Pablo Lorraine after like a really whirlwind uh, process there. Yeah, I got to talk to him after a screening at Telluride, and um, you know, he also told me they not he wasn't on the fence about it but some of the financiers didn't want an american to play diana which um you know there took a little convincing um but now after seeing it i feel like i can't imagine anyone else doing that role i mean kristen did a great job i loved the film too i loved that it was ridiculous like we don't need another straight biopic on on diana so like this is what i was hoping for and and i think especially the scenes where it's her and the kids that play harry and william were some of my favorite parts of it so those are the less bonkers ones but um i thought (laughs) she really showed off like um a lot of depth in those scenes especially yeah, acting with kids is hard, and I because yeah. <laughs> those kids were amazing. But those scenes, I mean, they were entrancing. I really like the way that the movie um, kind of leans into some of its like meta textuality. Like, you, you know, like you've both said, like you you leave the movie and you're like, I don't think that anyone but Kristen Stewart could have done this. Kristen Stewart, the famous entity that she is, heard the sort of evolution of how she's famous. Um, it doesn't map Diana Spencer's story exactly, or maybe even at all. But there is both this this sense that like Kristen Stewart knows of what she speaks when she's playing someone who is, you know, f- seemingly living a fabulous life from the outside, but interior interiorly like like really constricted and feeling a bit desperate. I think that both Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson. Um, I think they've said in interviews that they don't begrudge the Twilight films. They didn't feel like they were stuck in this horrible contract or whatever. But still, the way that Kristen Stewart became famous then with, you know, various romantic things that were splashed all over the tabloids and everything, um, there very much seems like she is working through or in reflection how she kind of moved past that and became this indie kind of 
explore, you know, in the arts in the same way that Diana Spencer is contemplating uh, leaving the royal family. So Rebecca and David, you guys were there in Telluride to see kind of how the response was. And it did seem like everything I read from Telluride is that like Kristen Stewart and sorry, Richard, you were also in Telluride. I don't mean to diminish your Telluride experience. (laughs) Um, But Kristen Stewart was just like one of the big focal points of the whole festival. Like everyone was so excited to see her and talk to her about Spencer, right? Oh, yeah. She was. um, I mean, that movie had just premiered in Venice to pretty glowing reviews and, you know, I think it was kind of a perfect place for it to premiere. Um, Richard mentioned in our kind of postmortem that the, the screening we all attended together, it was, it was the one premiere that none of us <laughs> decided to miss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that screening felt a little bit less, let's say, uniformly enthusiastic. It seemed like I'd spoken to some people in the industry after the screening who were pretty repelled by it. And, and <laughs> you know, I think you got a different kind of sample size, right, of, of how gen- the general public is going to react to this movie. And so in terms of like prognostication and things like that, I'm not sure quite how far the film itself can go, but everyone wanted to see Kristen Stewart. Everyone was talking about her performance in it. And I think um, rightly she's on track for her first nomination for sure. Yeah, I think that's the the big question that I have about Spencer not having seen it and like, having loved Jackie, uh, the previous Pablo Lorraine movie about a troubled, famous woman, um, but knowing that it also wasn't for everybody. Like, I wonder, when you say she's on track for her first nomination, like, you know, that seems, that happens all the time where we see people nominated for movies that, don't, that people don't otherwise love. But, it, like, is the Spencer backlash coming around the bend once more people <laughs> get a look at it? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the kind of movie that, like Jackie, would struggle on, you know, something like a preferential ballot, say, um, just because there are, it's not going to be a consensus pick by any means, but I mean, I think everyone on this podcast really liked the movie who's seen it. And so if little gold men had, if little gold men (laughs) had its way, um, (laughs) you never know what our impact might be. So, and and I think if some people are really repelled by it, that's the movie doing part of its job, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's framed that way, you know, it is, and, and people should read Cassie's great review, which really goes into, like, the ridiculousness and how that needs to be there. It's really important to, like, how the story is told, but is putting itself so far out there that it's like, you know what, you know, you can laugh at this if you want, you know, <laughs> like, we're mm-hmm. just going to do this and it's going to be what it is because this is how we're telling the story. It's not trying to be... It's not, I don't think it's really trying to like please people. It's just trying to, which makes it a really nice, like kind of, and unique these days. Like it's just its own little contained piece of art that is um, just kind of bearing its throat for interpretation, I guess. That's interestingly how I felt about Harriet too. It just came to mind, you know, with the singing. And there was a lot of criticism around that, but I felt that, you know, Cassie Lemon there and Pablo Larine with this film. You know, they both are doing something, I think, that is maybe more accepted in theater, which is really taking their subject and imagining it outside of the bounds of what we conceive of as reality and and going to a kind of psychological, emotional place with it. And that's always going to be divisive. But I mean, I don't know if you look back to the films from 10 years ago, you still remember and still like watching. It's usually the films that a lot of people didn't like. (laughs) Uh, well, I feel like this is an interesting transition to the other actor who I feel like I heard the most about universally from Telluride, which is Will Smith and King Richard, which from everything I can tell is a much more traditional, much more crowd-pleasing movie, but that, you know, it's a big studio movie. It's not the kind of thing that would usually go to Telluride, but as far as I can all tell, everyone loved it. 
Yeah, I think I think because I went in thinking this is a standard studio movie, sports drama, like I know what I'm getting into. And Oof. it just like pleasantly surprised me. I thought the filmmaking was really great. Even the music, they, like everything just feels so thoughtful. And I just loved watching Will's performance and the supporting actresses are all really, really great. It just like, I think because I went in with sort of lukewarm expectations it just totally exceeded that and ever that is the definitely the film that everyone i asked what really impressed you like this is the one that came up the most by far yeah i think it does a really good job of you know if you don't care about tennis or you don't really know anything about serena and venus williams or or they're certainly their father richard williams like it 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 makes you care like it it because it, it stands on its own it doesn't need the sort of out you know the, the it's broader context to 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 like exist it um and i think a large part of that is that the director reynaldo marcus green like like you said rebecca he 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 makes thoughtful films even if they're things like you know joe bell which was kind of roundly you know panned at last year's toronto but not by me um like there's real intention there and 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 care um and that's how you take a standard biopic and actually make it feel like an urgent movie and then on top of that you have will smith and i think that it's such a full-bodied performance, and it's really great to see that kind of work done in a movie that can support it, because I feel like a lot of time come Oscar season, we see these big, towering performances, but the movie that, that houses it doesn't really live up to that. But I think King Richard does. Well, Richard, you're famous on this podcast for making bold predictions, and you've already made this prediction uh, on VF.com, <laughs> and I need you to make it here, and I'm going to pull it, Joanna, and write it down on a Post-it. Uh, would you like to make a Best Actor Oscar prediction right now, Richard? Yes, I'm gonna. I'm staring at the CN Tower. I'm gonna call it to the. You know, that's the highest point I can see. Um, Will Smith is gonna win an Oscar for this. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't see anyone beating him. At least from what I've seen this year. Um, obviously, there's stuff to come. But it's. Um, it's just. It. It feels like the timing is right. The movie's right. The subject matter is right. The kind of performance it is. It's because it's not Will Smith when he just tries to be very serious, like in um, Concussion or is what that was. Was that was that what that movie oh, was yeah. called? Tell right? the truth. Yeah. yeah. Tell the truth. Yeah. You know, or or even, you know, some of his earlier dramatic work. Like, it, it's playful but also serious. It's a re- he's playing a real life person, which again, the, you know, we know the Academy likes. Um, there's just all of the component parts, and then again, like I said, the rest of the movie is good too. He has wonderful support from Anjanu Ellis and the the girls who play Venus and Serena and their sisters. John Bernthal's even really likable in it, which I didn't know that he could be likable. Um, <laughs> so there's just a lot of like apparatus around this great performance that I think will help buoy it um, into like the top of people's screener queues and then on their ballots. I was just thinking about how you know it's not, it hasn't been that long since Brad Pitt kind of had his whole like. Here is a major movie star, give him an Oscar, for God's sake, like campaign. And that can really work, especially when there's a movie to back it up that's that well liked, which once upon a time in Hollywood it uh, was. And it seems like King Richard is. So I, I think if you're going to be confident about something, that's a good bet to make. He weirdly did not come to Telluride to promote it, but he's like so charming when he's on a press tour. And so I feel like if we get to see a lot of Will Smith this season, that will only help his journey to the Oscar. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts.
The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Um, I want to loop back to The Lost Daughter for a second, which, Cassie, you talked about. Uh, you reviewed uh, Out of Venice and Was That Tell You Right as well and Maggie Gyllenhaal. I mean, when I say it feels like people were everywhere, my sense of Telluride from you guys is that you just bump into the same people over and over again. So there's like you not <laughs> a huge number of celebrities, but they're everywhere you turn. And she looked great in her mountain wear there with Peter Sarsgaard. She directed The Lost Daughter. Um, she's got this great cast in there. I mean, David, you had talked to her previously about making her directorial debut, and it seemed to um, really just soar. Oh, God, that's cheesy to say about Telluride. But it really took off in Telluride. Like, people seem to really embrace it. Yeah, so Netflix had three events for three different movies, which <laughs> they were the only studio to do that. The first was for um, Paolo Sorrentino's The Hand of God. And that night was when reviews for... Lost Daughter were breaking in Venice, and it was really all anyone at Netflix could talk about, at least in my conversations with them. It was um, really across the board raves, including Cassie's lovely review. And I think a real embrace of, of Maggie Gyllenhaal's vision for this film, it's very uncompromising. It's just not something you see from an actor's first film much at all. Um, and, and just like a, a real confidence in terms of this is the kind of movie I'm making these are the kinds of characters that I want to really dig into, and I'm not going to apologize for that. And I think people really responded to that. Um, and it continued to play well uh, once it started screening at Telluride through the weekend. Um, and Rebecca and I were talking about this, just how often you would hear her name in, in the context of, wow, like I just didn't expect that from Maggie Gyllenhaal's first film or something like that. Um, she adapted the book. Um, I think she's a really good contender, particularly for screenplay. Um, and I am curious to see how far the film can go across the board. You know, Olivia Coleman, it might be my favorite film performance of hers. It's just so <laughs> tricky and deep and kind of plays off of her own very likable persona in playing a character who ultimately makes some <laughs> some um, tough decisions, uh, both in flashbacks <laughs> and in the present day. And uh, Jesse Buckley is plays her younger self. She and Coleman, if they are both nominated, would be the first pair to be nominated for playing the same role, which is interesting. And Dakota Johnson also is do, doing really great work in a different kind of role for her um, as, as a woman who uh, Olivia Coleman's character becomes kind of fascinated with. So yeah, just played really well. They were everywhere. Dakota Johnson was there. 
Peter and Maggie through a dance party on the last big night of Telluride, <laughs> which was attended by Kirsten Dunst and Benedict Cumberbatch and many, many others. And David um, Canfield. And David Canfield. And I think Richard <laughs> lost it until the dancing started. <laughs> I left at the dancing because I don't like to dance, but also dancing at high altitude. I don't know. That seems <laughs> like a bad they, idea. <laughs> I imagine Richard seeing Peter Sarsgaard dancing and just like disappearing back into the bushes like Homer Simpson. Just <laughs> <laughs> that was essentially... It, it, it did start very abruptly, like, because the, the film's set in Greece, and so you have this very, like, intense Greek music and dance that Maggie and Peter are doing alone, and then people are just kind of watching, waiting to see whether or not they should join. And this dance party had been sort of threatened for three days previously. Correct, yes. Maggie, had herself, talking, Ma- Maggie yeah. herself had told me about it days ago. <laughs> yeah. Did Maggie Gyllenhaal and Kirsten Dunst ever make a movie together in the aughts? Like in my, I keep thinking they had, but I cannot come well, up Becca, with Rebecca, didn't it. I ask you that? You we were... literally <laughs> asked me that on the shuttle to the airport. And we sat there and looked out the window and tried to think of the, well, we couldn't think of one. <laughs> I yeah. guess they must not have, but they were just so in the same loops yeah. for so much. They spent a lot of time together. So Jane Campion, Kirsten Dunst, Benedict Cumberbatch, Cody Smith-McPhee, there was a big Power of the Dark presence in Telluride. It's Western. It kind of makes sense there. Um, and it did seem like it was uh, being warmly embraced the way that we expected it to be, right? Yeah my, yeah. my bold prediction is that Jane Campion is coming out of this winning Best Director. I think that she has a very clear path. That's a, uh, I feel like that's a solid prediction. I mean, you, I, I think you've pointed this out that, you know, Titan wins Palme d'Or. The last woman to win Palme d'Or was Jane Campion, who got a Best Director nomination for the, the Oscars but didn't win. Um, and, you know, coming off of a year where two women get nominated for Best Director at the Oscars for the first time, I do feel like there are so many female directors out there this year that's going to be like, come on, keep it going. Keep the, make women as part of the conversation as much as possible. Not to mention that Jane Campion is kind of a legend all, unto her own. Yeah. And what it what the movie does so well is just like remind because it's been twelve years since she made a film and she's done you know TV obviously but it just reminds you of like what a singular filmmaker she is that her yeah. interests are so particular and the way that she um, expresses those interests and you know here she's a she's adapting from a novel that's you know what sixty years old fifty five years old um, and. Uh, and 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 you're just kind of you, you, after the movie. You're like, why did she pick that? It's so interesting. But then obviously it's so clear. Also in hindsight, like, and and I think that that kind of signature work after such a storied career puts her in in great and well deserved position. Yeah, yeah, I had I went to the tribute where they showed you know clips of her work before she talked on stage at Telluride, and just like seeing the beautiful work she's done, and then watching this film, I had that same experience as Richard, where you're just like, she deserves this. You know, she's such a talented filmmaker. I did suffer a little bit from festival hype before I saw this <laughs> film because everyone I know was like, this is the best film ever, and um, so I was like, no, it's good. I enjoyed it, but it's funny. This film stuck with me more than any other movie I saw there and I was thinking about it and talking about it three days later and and it sort of like grew on me and and uh now I consider it a film I really liked but I I will say that festival hype is definitely still real (laughs) buyer beware (laughs) (laughs) that that tribute was interesting too because it was moderated by Rebecca Keegan of the Hollywood Reporter and Jane Campion was just not particularly interested in answering questions that night and it was like oh this is how your your campaign's kicking off um, i love it and she was just sort of hilariously charming in her refusal to participate and then the next morning uh, the film had a had a big you know well-attended brunch and she was just so effortlessly going from table to table talking to people and i think you saw her ability to you know in her very singular personal way uh, work a room without being too uh 
focused on the campaigning part of it. And then we have two Ridley Scott movies coming down the pike. Imagine the two of them working in a room together, just like irascible <laughs> veteran filmmakers. Joel Cohen, too. <laughs> God, yeah. Joel Cohen is just going to pretend none of this is happening and uh, not show up to any of your events, would be my guess. Yeah. It's interesting to think about Benedict Cumberbatch, who, you know, we've talked about his role in this movie. It does seem like he is firmly in the best actor conversation as well. He's about as different a movie star as you can get from Will Smith. Like, their personas could not be more different. But it is interesting to consider the two of them together. Like, you know, what what kind of a, a treat to have two different performances to potentially dominate the season going forward. And another thing about Jane Campion's genius is that she really figures out what to do with Benedict Cumberbatch in a way that I feel like most directors haven't. They're like, oh, he should play these, like, you know, you know, arrogant, like, you know, savants who solve crimes or invent <laughs> computers or whatever. And he's fine in those roles. But Campion saw the sort of darkness in him and just dragged all of it out. And, I, and, and, it, and it's so effective, but also there's a hurt in there in this character. It's a really complex character. Um, and it's the first Benedict Cumberbatch performance I've ever seen where I was like, oh, I finally fully get it. And I think a lot of that credit should go to Campion. Well, I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, Cassie. Can't wait to see it. <laughs> the last thing I'd say about the movie is that, you know, just in terms of its, I think, very fruitful award season that's coming is is it it builds. It has, it kind of thrums with this tension that you can't really place and you don't really know where it's going and she's shifting points of view a lot. And the last 30 minutes or so are, are incredibly intense and the final few scenes are incredibly clarifying and make you want to you know revisit it, I think, to Rebecca's point. And that's the kind of movie that does stay with a voter and that does stay with a viewer. And in a way that uh, I think it only builds an estimation, at least it, it has for me, I've seen it twice now. Um, it, it really sticks with you in, in a way that uh, serves it well. Uh, the last thing I was going to say is just, just in terms of other people to single out is that uh, Cody Smith-McPhee and Kirsten Dunst both seem to have a, a good share of fans from this as well. Definitely. And well, we can get into some of the other titles that premiered at Venice. And um, ahead of the festival, Rebecca, you had done a piece on Cyrano uh, without having seen it, um, talking to Joe Wright and kind of looking at Peter Dinklage's central performance. And um, there was a tribute to Peter Dinklage ahead of the screening. So, you know, if they're trying to prime somebody up for an award season narrative, it seems like Peter Dinklage is right there, right? Yes, I think he his performance is really strong in the movie. It's, it's definitely getting mixed um, sort of feedback from people I talked to two on the ground in Telluride. Um, you know, it's a musical and it's really about love. There's not, as Joe Wright, I think it said in my interview, there's not a cynical bone in the body of this film. And, you know, some people are turned off by that. Um, but some of the songs work so well um, that they, you know, really stick with you days after. Um, but through it all, like Peter Dinklage's performance is really wonderful. And, you know, it was it's adapted from a play that his wife wrote for him to play that lead. So he really, you know, just delivers a really memorable performance. So I think plus the tribute, plus he's, you know, beloved by the acting community already. It just feels like he's got a lot of those um, boxes checked that you do mm -hmm. um, to become an Oscar nominee. So I, I could definitely see him coming. I will I will say I loved Kelvin Harrison Jr. in this film. He can sing like an angel, which I did not know until I saw this. You know, he um, had a great performance in Waves, but I do think um, even if this isn't the one, we'll be seeing him, you know, in, in bigger films and as a lead. Uh, hopefully another musical because he can really sing uh, down the line. We need more musicals in the world. We really do. I feel like Kelvin, he comes from like a famous jazz family. Yes, I Brandon, learned that at an event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's got that background. 
Well, he uses it well in the film. He's, um, and, and I think in, in Dinklage is not known to really be a singer, you know, in any sort of formal way, but um, the music for Cyrano was written uh, by the two of the, the brothers who help make up the band The National. And Dinklage's singing voice sounds so much like the lead singer of The National. Like it's this really low kind of, I don't know how to describe it, uh, like plaintive, but not like, but kind of confident. It's a really interesting tone. And so he's not like, you know, some beautiful musical theater singer, but like he sells it in the movie. And I think that kind of degree of difficulty stuff, um, you know, earns him extra points. It never occurred to me that Peter Dinklage of the National would be a fit for that reason. But that, I can, the minute you said that, I can absolutely hear what Peter Dinklage's singing would sound like. Yeah. And I want to see it for myself. Glenn Hansard also pops up in one one scene singing oh. a very beautiful song about war. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I'd be happy to see him. Um, and then, okay, two more Telluride titles that we want to check off the list. Uh, who want, I guess they're both, both in black and white. Belfast and Come On, Come On. Am I remembering this correctly? Mm-hmm. Yes, wow. they are. Which, which is the black and white film to beat in, uh, I don't know, audience affection or anything else? Belfast in terms of, of audience affection, I think. If not, I mean, I think Come On, Come On has gotten much better reviews. I liked that movie than, more than Belfast, uh, personally. But I think Belfast has the sort of, well, I'll let Rebecca spoke with, with Ken about it so she can. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just, you know, Belfast, it also felt like it played more at the festival than any other film because there was really always <laughs> there was always a screening. So someone was always talking about it. But, you know, I saw it um, ahead of time so I could do a preview piece with Kenneth Branagh. And it's, uh, you know, it's a very personal story to him. And it's his Roma. I think I said this before on this podcast but to me it you could actually feel how personal that story was to him and and I really um, appreciated it and and you know because it's about his life as a child in Belfast when you know suddenly his childhood was sort of turned upside down by this violence and danger and and I feel like you can kind of relate to that now because as parents you have to sort of decide what's safe and what's not during this pandemic with your kids and and then there's a lot of um movie watching in the film and I feel like being a Telluride you sort of remembered that you missed movie watching as an escape in a theater and so it just somehow becomes a super timely movie um, even though it's from Kenneth Branagh's childhood (laughs) makes me wonder about movies with movie watching in them and what their Oscar track record is because there's movie watching in Roma there's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there's got to be a uh, a it's also weirdly identical to, in that respect, to Hand of God, because that mm-hmm. is also a movie uh, made from his childhood, which, through the various things that happened in his childhood, charts his journey to becoming a filmmaker. So it's um, there's a lot of parallels there. And I believe that one also, he spoke a lot about just the residents of the pandemic in terms of, you know, encouraging him to want to make this film. So. That's yeah, I wanted to well. ask. I wanted to ask by hand of God because David, you mentioned that was one of the big three Netflix titles they had, and it was at Venice before too. And Cassie, you saw that one as part of Venice. Like, does it if if that's Netflix's Roma and Belfast is uh, what Focus Features is Roma? Which one is the real Roma <laughs> of, of the season? Were you, were you a fan, Cassie? I gotta say, I was not a fan. It was. It's one of those films that you're glad you're watching it in a theater because there's a lot that is arresting about it, and the imagery is is beautiful and. At times, the pacing is really lovely. There are things that Sorrentino does very well. I think he does them best in television because he has the space in television to be bombastic in the most over-the-top way and sell it to an audience who needs their attention kept. In a film, in in a theater, or even if you're just streaming this film, I have a sense that he's doing too much 
And the it becomes hectic and not in an interesting way. It just becomes running through ideas and themes and um, he really is trying to give you the pathos of his childhood. Like, you're not going to believe how emotional this all was. It's like, I believe you. So it's, it's one of those films where you're just like, okay, I get it. And, you know, you're still like waiting for the last hour to drop of the film. I yeah. wish I liked it more. The film does look amazing. I mean, he he, he is a, you know, an aesthetic person, an aesthetic filmmaker. But credit should also go, um, the cinematographer who, I don't have her name in front of me, but I met her at a dinner for uh, the film. Um, and she's this little Italian woman with spiky bl- dyed blonde hair. And I w- was embarrassingly trying to like talk to her about like, Italian film and television and and that I don't know enough about. And I mentioned one Italian show, Gamora, that, you know, plays, I think, on HBO here or at least on HBO Max or something. And she, she really took me to task for even mentioning a show that she apparently hates. So anyway, <laughs> I saw her at a couple other events and she was fabulous. So I want to see more from her. She, she was around. She was, yeah, yeah. she was lovely. I love just like trying to mention like the one thing you've ever seen in a foreign language, but like you chose wrong. So sorry. <laughs> and then I had to, and I had to tell the interpreter like, can you apologize to her for me? And, and then, and then she, and then the interpreter like said, you know, explained in Italian, and she turned to me and she was like, ah, eh, forget about it, <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Take it easy or something. It was great. This is why we travel and go to film festivals. Yeah. Experience you can't get anywhere else. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Little Goldmen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Little Goldmen for a whole month of great cinema for free movie.com slash little gold men. Um, okay, I pivoted away from Come On, Come On, but I did want to talk about it. The trailer for it came out for May 24 today, and I feel like I saw it with just, like, crying emojis next to it a ton. Um, and it seems like we're having, like, a parenthood theme this fall, even though Come On, Come On's about an uncle. Um, Richard, I think you were saying, like, how maybe relieved you might be to see Joaquin Phoenix out of Joker mode in his first post-Joker movie. Um, did, it, yeah. did it live up to that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was funny to be at Telluride and, and see Benedict Cumberbatch and be like, oh, I think I get it. And then with Joaquin Phoenix and Come On, Come On, who I've gotten it with him before, but like most of his work, I just find too mannered and too, I don't know, alienating or something. But this is a the softer side of, of, of Phoenix um, in, a, in a good way. And, you know, after seeing The Lost Daughter and 
other films where children were in peril, it was nice to see a movie about like the relationships between children and adults that was, you know, loving and sort of like uh, sweet, um, but not in a a cloying way. Yeah, I I cried a lot. I think it's got a lot of powerful things to say in a quiet way about um, not just, you know, raising children, but also just like being alive in the world and to be you know, to think and to feel and, and, and how you kind of compromise all the just sort of jumble of not only your own life, but what's happening in the world outside. There's just a lot um, going on in it that I didn't expect, you know, and I think that in the past, Mike Mills, who made, you know, Beginners and 20th Century Women, mo- movies I appreciate, certainly, but I feel like he's kind of forcing the profundity in those films, and in this, it just kind of arrives naturally um, in really delicate ways um, that, yeah, had me weeping in a, in a park in, in Colorado. Yes, it also made me weep. <laughs> I don't know if at the same points, um, but it's, yeah, you can feel a particular kind of personal touch with this. He always uh, imbues his movies with very particular um, personal reference points, beginners being about his father, 20th century women about his mother. This one um, was about his child. I got to interview him uh, and Gabby Hoffman, who steals pretty much every scene she's in as the, as the mother of the, of the child in the film. Um, and, and he said that he wrote the whole movie with his son right next to him and it's you know a lot of the very specific kinds of behaviors and quotes that you get in this film that make the movie in a lot of ways are just things that he was observing as he was writing and i think that quality really shines through uh now i'm on imdb to see if gabby hoffman and kirsten Dunst ever made a movie together because that also feels like (laughs) i know it's like the all of the 90s child actors and uh 2000s ingenues are coming back i love it um, well, we should pivot to Toronto because that is coming up. And uh, there will be a lot of titles that we've already talked about here or have premiered elsewhere that will be there. Um, Dune is going to be playing at Toronto. We didn't really talk about it, but you can read Richard's review. We'll have plenty of time to talk about Dune in the future, I think. Um, Belfast will be there. Spencer, Power of the Dog, um, the documentary The Rescue um, about the Thai cave rescue. Did any of you guys see that one? I feel like that one was getting good tell your red buzz. I'm seeing it here, but... Um... Vanity Fair did co-host a party with National Geographic, which had four films at the fest at Telluride, and yeah, people people are abuzz about that one. It, it's about the um, the rescue of the kids, the Thai kids caught in the cave, and with the, some like reenactments of the dives that these British divers had to do. Um, so I'm excited to see it here. Yeah, it's from the directors of Free Solo, who you know kind of yeah, made their way around yeah. a uh, outdoor adventure movie. Um, and then last night, Soho will be there uh, as of, as we talked about it, it was at Venice, but none of us have had a chance to see it. And there's not too much out there about it, but I'm intrigued by it. Um, and then there's some uh, big deal debuts that, uh, you know, given the state of the Toronto digital access, uh, most of us will not get to see unless you're in Canada like Richard. So Richard, what are you going to get to see that the rest of us don't? Well, um, I will see Last Night in Soho. I will catch up with Belfast, which um, both of those are not going to be available to screen uh, on the digital platform. Um, But some other movies will um, that I'm looking forward to. Um, Stephen Karam, the playwright, did an adaptation that he directed of his of his play The Humans, which was a big off-Broadway hit that then transferred to Broadway and is now a film with Richard Jenkins and Jane Howdyshell, who won a Tony for her role in the play. Uh, Beanie Feldstein is in it, Stephen Yun. Um, and I, uh, I just, I think it has a lot of promise. Um, I, you know, it's probably going to be a small movie that the play is very interior and very dark and almost kind of a horror play. Um, so I'm curious to see how that translates to film. And then speaking of theater to film, there's Dear Evan Hansen, which is opening the festival. So I'll see that, uh, you know, while we're recording on a Wednesday, I'll see it, uh, tomorrow. And, oh, there's a movie that Martin McDonough's brother made, 
with Jessica Chastain and Ray Fiennes called The Forgiven that sounds pretty intriguing and is also intriguing for the Chastain of it all, who after, you know, a viral moment on the Venice carpet with when she was there for Scenes from a Marriage, has this movie premiering and then obviously the big uh, Eyes of Tammy Faye film where she plays Tammy Faye Baker that's also world premiering here in Toronto. So could be a big uh, week for her in the way that it was a big week for Oscar Isaac last week. Uh, are you going to get to see the Steven Soderbergh secret movie or is it premiering after you leave? I didn't know about that until just now. Oh, so they just I, yeah, announced tell me they, about it. They, well, nobody knows. They announced it like last week. They're like, we have a top secret collaboration with Steven Soderbergh. We're not going to tell you what it is. And that's all we know. Not even a title. Come on. <laughs> Does anyone have any spec? I've seen speculation that it's like a documentary about his Oscars, which like obviously I would watch. I don't know who else would. But uh, anyone have any speculation about what it could be? I hope it's a sequel to Let Them All Talk. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope it's shot on an iPhone, but you know. yeah. yeah, it's like shot like at, like he gets to Toronto and shoots it on an iPhone and then just puts it up on the screen whenever he gets there. What if he gets the cast of Degrassi together and did something with them, a very Toronto <laughs> kind of thing? That would be thrilling. Like those Jason Reitman uh, live readings, but uh, what was Steven Soderbergh power? Yeah, Spinner and Page, like, you know, do a heist together or something. I yeah. don't know. Um, so anyone else have something they're keeping an eye on from Toronto? It is, again, like, it's a weird year. Like, there was, like, last year for Toronto, digital access was pretty robust. Like, I watched Nomadland in my basement. And for, I think, a lot of understandable reasons, studios are not as eager to make that available this year. Like, they're insisting on seeing things in person for the most part. Um, so even if you stay at home from Toronto, because travel's been so unsure, you're not going to have access. But um, I don't know, anyone else uh, watching out for anything that you can see from home in Toronto? Uh, Barry, Lev- Barry Levinson has a new movie coming out called The Survivor uh, with Ben Foster. It's uh, it's an interesting story about a it's a true life story of an Auschwitz survivor who boxed his fellow inmates in order to survive, which sounds a little dark. Um, but it's the kind of movie with that distribution that if it hits in the right way at TIFF could could get a late stage campaign. And Barry has has been a hit misdirector over the years, but um, certainly. Uh, can craft something um, that people respond to. So, I'll and Ben watching. Foster has certainly been scratching at that door for a long time. You know, yes. for that kind of big breakthrough role that puts him in, you know, in tuxedos at award shows. Yeah, Indeed. I uh, uh, I always think about how much I loved him in Leave No Trace, that movie that kind of introduced us all to Thomas and McKenzie, who's in. Um, oh, he's so good. Last in that. Night, so he's so good in it, and yeah, it does feel like the right role will put him over the top sooner than later. Um, I wanted to shout out a documentary that I do think I'll be able to see digitally, which is Jagged about Alanis Morissette and Jagged Little Pill. And, you know, it's, you know, such a generational sweet spot that, like, if it is just a, like, bunch of behind-the-scenes tapes of making it, I will probably like it. But it does seem like an interesting cultural artifact to revisit at this point in life. And she's obviously a Canadian treasure. So it'll be a little bit of that dose of, um, uh, you know, rah-rah Canadianism that you get when you go to Toronto. But I, I love when the festival gets real Canadian. It's, <laughs> it's, good. it's good. I feel like you're about to get a lot of that, though, Richard, because, like, you know, you're one of a handful of members of the press that I know of who are, you know, traveled across the border to get there. But I think it's going to be a pretty strong hometown presence there, right? Yeah, I mean, there are not many um, foreign journalists here from what I can tell. Um, I've heard that there are actually a lot more industry people coming than was anticipated. Um, So that could be interesting. I mean, there are no parties to speak of. There's the screening uh, situation is very regimented. And, you know, I got a certain amount of tickets I could use, press tickets, and that's it. Like, I'm cut off, basically, I think. So um, it's a bit... um, it feels a bit leaner of an experience. I mean, I just got here, but um, 
but it, you know, as I was selecting tickets, like there, there are interesting things. I'm going to catch up with some canned stuff. Um, so I'm happy they're at least doing something. And I, but I, and I think certainly the people who live here, um, who are going to go to ticketed screenings and stuff, um, I'm sure it'll be a nice return to that after last year's, not outright cancellation, certainly, but um, way scaled back uh, event. Yeah, I think if you are a Toronto resident and you're going to TIFF screenings and you love it, please tweet at us because I would love to hear what the experience is yes, like. Yes, yes. Is um, the Velvet Underground documentary playing at TIFF? I can't remember. Um, I don't know. It was at Telluride. Um, oh. And I think it was received well there. That's a good audience for, for that kind of film, I think. But yeah, did you that's see that one at Cannes, Richard? Yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah. Todd Haynes. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, so here's my embarrassing story about that movie. I don't know anything I don't know anything about music, but I knew that Todd Haynes had made a movie with Velvet in the title. And so I thought it was going to be a documentary of like glam rock and like queer Britain and, at the time. And then when it was started in New York and they're talking about Lou Reed and all this stuff, I was like, what is, how is he involved with that? And then I slowly realized, I was like, oh, I, I was thinking of something entirely different. <laughs> but it is a really interesting movie uh, that I learned a lot from. Yeah, now, now that you know, you'll save us all from having that experience at least. It's not Velvet Goldmine, people. It's not a documentary <laughs> about Velvet Goldmine. Um, any final uh, festival thoughts for anybody? Anything that I missed that we overlooked or that, I mean, we're all waiting for The Last Duel, which is still playing at Venice, um, and we haven't heard anything about yet. So if you're wondering, we don't know yet either. Um, but anything else? Halloween Kills is is premiering today. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, I mean, it, there's just so many movies all of a sudden after what feels like a long, long time, and it's going to be a really busy fall of releases as we, like, you know, chase Venom around the release schedule. So I think we'll be happily busy for a while. Um, I'd shout out uh, Oscar Farrelly's A Hero, which I heard a lot of people check out in Telluride, including Mike Mills and Gabby Hoffman, who quite <laughs> loved it. Um, and and a, one that Amazon's really trying to build buzz for uh, to get Farrelly his first directing nomination. He's uh, been behind two uh, Best International Film Oscar winners, um, but is yet to be nominated in that category. And uh, they seem to be nicely building momentum for him. So we shall see. That's another title that uh, will be at TIFF that you can uh, I yeah. probably, I think, only catch in person. So get, get, to ta- get to Toronto if you're in Canada already and tell us all about it. Well, that does it for this week's show. Uh, as I said, you can find uh, a lot of our Telluride and Venice coverage on Vanity Fair and then uh, Richard's upcoming TIFF coverage, which you should uh, all follow along and follow. Please uh, post some pictures of, uh, of downtown Toronto, Richard, so I can just feel feel like I'm there. It's been so long. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get some poutine on King Street. Yes, please. Um, you can also uh, follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Cassie. I'm at Two Ernest. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield, 97. You can also sign up to receive text from us and text back to us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 718-550-2059. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of why Joanna is not on this episode goes to David Canfield. Hilariously charming in her refusal to participate. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. 
Start today at Empower.com.